Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a pretty exciting founder. I think that we're gonna be learning quite a bit from from him. And and I don't want to wait any longer. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Brian Powers. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Really excited to be here. So born in Washington, but growing up there in Maryland. So how was how was life for you growing up? Uh it was great. Uh, two awesome parents. Um, my mom's a civil rights lawyer. My dad uh, works in the School of Public Policy at University of Maryland. So grew up a big Maryland Terrapins fan uh, growing up in College Park, uh, pretty much right on campus and uh, have an older sister, Lindsay, who's brilliant, always uh, set a high bar with grades and other things like that. So uh, it was really a awesome, awesome childhood. And very interesting because, you know, from there, from one side, you learn how to fight for what's yours. And then on the other side, you learn how to educate yourself and how knowledge is power. That's right. Yeah. I mean, my, my parents, uh, you know, were super big on education. I think they have like seven degrees among themselves uh, somehow. And uh, they, they, they really stressed the importance of school growing up. Very cool. Very cool. So did you have anyone in the family that was an entrepreneur as well or? Or how, or you think it was developed like later on? Yeah, I think it was developed later on. I, I, from an early age, I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I, I remember um, I had a speech impediment when I was a little kid, and I, I couldn't say my R's correctly. And so uh, I had, they'd give me a lot of difficult words to say and practice. One was rambunctious and one was uh, entrepreneur. Uh, which is very difficult to say if you don't know how to say your R's. And so I remember like really attaching to that word. And um, when I was, uh, <laughs> I don't remember this, but I've been told this, that I, in kindergarten, um, I uh, sold some of my classmates tickets to go to the moon because um, I said I was going to build a rocket ship once they gave me money to for the tickets. And um, I don't think I <laughs> went anywhere, but uh right. For some reason, I was always trying to, to scheme in some sort of way. Right. Very, very cool. Very cool. And, you know, one thing that is very interesting is that you met your co-founder very early on. I mean, we're talking about middle school. So, so tell us about this relationship that has, like, that is coming, like, 
it's come a long way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, James and I, uh, pretty much right as we met, started doing um, <laughs> lots of different stuff together. We formed a rock band um, called Paper Planes, and uh, with his brothers, uh, we uh, uh, he would play piano. He's a world class piano player, and I would sing and i'm far from a world-class singer but when you don't know how to play any instruments and you want to <laughs> hang out with your friends you, you, right. and you're willing to sound like an idiot they'll they'll let you uh, but we took that pretty seriously um and uh started a uh, yard work business junk removal business we just always wanted to kind of break out of whatever system we would any james is a very rebellious spirit and um also, his dad is an entrepreneur. Um, he prefers the term business builder, uh, Chris McGough, James' dad. Uh, and uh, so he always was inspiring us to, you know, go build a business, which when you're 14 means go mow a lawn. Um, but uh, it did instill in us a desire to uh, ultimately start something. Got it. Got it. So uh, obviously we're going to be talking about that, but here, one thing that happened is that you guys actually, you know, went through different directions, I would say, when it comes to education. And, and one thing took you to Philadelphia and, and for your co-founder, it took him to, to Canada. So, uh, so how, tell us about how, again, your journeys, you know, really crossed, how you cross paths once again. Yeah. So he, uh, uh, two things. One, he, he wanted to do engineering. Uh, his dad was an engineer, um, and he was super drawn to that. Uh, and then two, he met a girl in high school that, uh, was from Montreal and was going to go back there for college. And, uh, he ended up following her there. They both went to McGill, uh, and he ended up marrying her and they're expecting a, a kid any day now. Um, so she's, she's been through the journey, uh, since then, um, and uh i went to penn to study finance um and we wanted to you know use those different skill sets so uh, he would learn about things in class or in his internships like a new technology and we would think about how to apply it and try to figure out a cost model for it and it was really fun once he started going to engineering school and once i started learning a little bit more about finance because uh when we were growing up we were always coming up with ideas but it was really hard to come up with anything that was exciting or not taken or something we could actually do. You know, I remember James came up with an idea in high school that was uh, Gatorade flavored mouth guards, but because mouth guards always kind of taste bad after a while. And, and, you know, this would be a, a cool way to do it. We, we learned that it, that was one of the few ideas that wasn't taken, but probably for a good reason, because it can lead to a, a number of cavities uh, and, and not offer great protection. So, uh, but once we, once he got the engineering uh, background and, you know, we linked up with Charles, our third co-founder, we had a lot more tools to go explore uh, different uh, business ideas. Nice. So, so tell us about how you went about exploring those business ideas and then how you went about the actual execution of them. Yeah. So James would hear about these different things and come to me and we talk about it. And um, I remember my, junior year of college, it's probably 2012, James um, uh, worked at Boeing outside of Philadelphia. Um, I was going to school in Philly. So he came over to my apartment with a big tub of this material 
Um, it was this lightweight white powder. And he was like, this is the future. Like, this is it. Uh, and it's called Aerogel. Uh, and it's the lightest weight insulated material ever. Uh, it looks kind of like laundry detergent in powder form. It's super lightweight. Um, and it just got us really excited. It was used in NASA spacesuits to keep it cold. And we were going to apply it to something new. You know, we thought of a, a North Face type jacket. We thought of uh, making a really elect, uh, uh, energy efficient refrigerator. Um, and, and then ultimately, that's what led to an idea for a cooler. Um, but and it's funny because we did not end up using any aerogel in any products we ended up selling. But that original kind of thought, uh, you know, we were so excited we'd lose sleep over it, even though we... <laughs> ended up never really using it. it just got us on the right path so then what happened next yeah so we uh we uh entered uh the wharton business plan competition with uh an idea for a, a very uh high-end lightweight cooler for the consumer market uh in you know camping tailgating that sort of thing we're going to charge several hundred dollars because aerogel is not a cheap um, material. And we got kicked out of the first round uh, and they said, you know, nobody is going to buy that expensive of a cooler, uh, which is funny because Yeti has really proven <laughs> that uh, it's it, 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 they, they've done really well in that category and really created that category. Um, but what they what the feedback did say is going to pharmaceutical cold chain packaging, uh, which we didn't know much about. But that, that's really the, the transport of temperature-sensitive uh, medical materials, things like biologic drugs, uh, vaccines, blood, uh, all, all sorts of things. And it was a world that was growing from very niche um, to, to very big. Uh, the, the, the biggest source of growth in pharmaceuticals are, are, are temperature-sensitive drugs. And uh, that meant that all these companies that had been used to transporting pills, you know, you can a million of them on a truck all of a sudden they were transporting these big bulky styrofoam boxes uh often literally a hundred times larger than the vials they would transport uh and so it was this just incredibly inefficient system that everybody knew was inefficient but uh styrofoam was really the only thing around it, it was 70 years old it was you know everywhere it was pretty affordable um but it was bulky uh, it was very uh, capital intensive to get a size bespoke to what they were shipping. Um, and they were doing it in the midst of so much growth that it's always hard to optimize when you're growing so quickly. So, um, you know, we looked at it like there is a lot of optimization here to do. And I remember them saying, oh, by the way, we hear it's not great for the environment. Uh, and so that became a, a big part of our pitch. You know, it was something that was important to us growing up. Um, you know, my, my dad would work for the EPA uh, back in the 70s, and um, it was always something that we, we thought about. But, uh, you know, back then I would say it was a top three pain point. It is now, you know, fast forward seven, uh, eight years from then, it, it is by far the biggest reason why folks talk to our company. Um, and we're, we're seeing it. Uh, even in the midst of a pandemic, sustainability is still very important, and it's really only gaining steam. And I'm sure that now with all this climate change uh, stuff as well, you know, there's people even more conscious about it. Yeah, people are all looking like, what can I do? You know, they, they 
and it, it's hard. It, 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 it's really hard to know what to do and what actually matters. And, um, but when they get a box filled with plastic packaging and it all goes to the landfill and they hear about the toxic emissions that were used to make those, they see the documentaries where the ocean is filled with plastic and, you know, the fish's bellies are filled with plastic and then we eat the fish. And I, I think there was just a study came out University of Arizona that said uh, virtually every human has microplastics in their organs and tissues um, from what we eat. So it's not just the fish that we feel bad for. It's ourselves. Uh, you know, and they just say, what can what can I do? And so, uh, you know, and we got started in the e-commerce food space and uh, consumers were demanding less plastic packaging. They wanted alternatives. Uh, and we had developed uh, a, a material that was made from silica, uh, so the natural non-plastic uh, material, and then uh, ultimately decided to go even deeper into sustainability, started using plant fiber, uh, recycled plant fiber from jute plants. Um, and then as we started to scale uh, our own manufacturing operation, we started to use plant starch and paper and make it curbside recyclable. Um, and, uh, really, but also really scalable, really lightweight. Uh, and, and, you know, it takes, we're on our sixth year now. Uh, so that, that takes a lot of time, but because there was such a demand for non-plastic alternatives, um, our, 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 uh, customers were really willing to grow up with us, you know, take the incremental change when, when they could get it and allow us to ultimately build enough business to make the investments necessary to get a wholesale change, which is what we have today. Instead of petroleum-based styrofoam getting shipped and then lasting a thousand years in a landfill, we're shipping plant starch that dissipates in a matter of seconds uh, when it's in water and what's left is paper that gets recycled. And um, it's, a, it, it's a change that, that was really hard. And you know we still have a long ways to go. We want to continue to make the product lighter and better and less energy intensive and um, but it, it, it's exciting to see people get so driven by reducing their footprint in, in even these sorts of small ways. So then what ended up for the folks that are listening, what, what ended up being the business model? How do you guys make money? Yeah, it's, we sell coolers that go inside, uh, cardboard boxes. Um, so if, if any folks out there have gotten a meal kit, uh, there's a decent chance um, it, it, it came with our insulation. If it was recyclable, it's a very good chance. Um, and uh, we just charge, you know, on a buy cooler basis. Um, we make now about 3 million of those a month, growing very quickly. Um, and we're just a manufacturing company. Um, we, we make all of our, or virtually all of our products in-house. Um, and uh, we also have a design shop. We have over 30 engineers. We have an ISTA certified lab um, where we design packaging, we test it. Um, but uh, we don't really charge for those services. Um, we, we really just make money on uh, selling each cooler. Got it. And you say that when you say we're making three million, is that you've made three, three million of those coolers, that you're making those like a, a year or a month or? Oh, every month, yep. Every month, wow, that's that's really amazing. So, um, you know, talking about timing too, no? Because when you started this business, I mean, we're talking about 
you know, some time ago. I mean, we're talking about 2015. I think that back in 2015, people were not as conscious when it came, when it came to the use of plastic, to the movement of, of climate change, to Greta Thunberg being on the on the cover of Time magazine. So how would you say that that being at the right time in history has helped you guys? Yeah, yeah, we, we couldn't have... Uh... We couldn't have predicted the the wave that was coming, and we certainly weren't uh, expecting it. Uh, I think the big thing everybody said when we were getting started is everybody wants green, but nobody will pay for it. Uh, And so the only green technologies that will work are ones that uh, somehow save people money. Uh, And we, uh, you know, even today, we we can't charge the same amount of styrofoam. We have to charge more. Our our products are just more expensive. but um, there, there's two things that make it a lot easier, uh, for our customers to pay for our product than, than maybe some, some other green things. And one of those is consumers are demanding it. You know, they, they will cancel their boxes if they perceive there being too much plastic packaging. It's the single biggest reason a lot of our customers, uh, you know, report why people leave their subscriptions. Um, so it's, you know, they're economically incentivized to get, uh, to reduce the amount of plastic that they use. Um, the, um, uh, second thing is the cold chain world is, is still very new. And that means like I was saying in the beginning, like it's unoptimized. So we often find ways to design the box in ways that ultimately save our customers money. So they might pay more for our cooler than styrofoam, but we might design a smaller box for them or a box that doesn't need as much coolant. So it's lighter. So, you know, their FedEx or UPS bill will be lower. Uh, so we found ways to make it uh, a lot less painful. Um, but, you know, as, like you said, it's a totally different pitch right now. Uh, people really care about the planet. They're very worried about climate change. They're worried about the, the plastic filling the oceans. And uh, th- that makes it uh, that much easier. And I, I think we're now in an environment where, every company out there that's buying styrofoam is looking for an alternative. I think when we were getting started, it was a, a very small niche of them. And that doesn't mean every company's ready to switch right now, but they're, they're starting to look, they know they can't be using this forever. And uh, it's, in, it's a good environment to sell into, but it, it just makes the, the problem, the void we're trying to fill that much larger. Uh, and that means we need to scale really fast. And so uh, it's, it's fun, but it's definitely a challenge. And talking about scaling really fast, I mean, in the last two years, you've raised more money than any money that you had ever raised in since uh, 2015. So how much capital have you guys raised today? About $80 million. Um, you know, a lot of it for equipment uh, and just expanding our, our team and our product lines. Uh, there's We're in a capital intensive business. You know, we, we have a lot of uh, machinery and space and um, I, I think we also came at a, a time where, uh, venture capital was more open to non-software, uh, applications, you know, seven, eight years ago, it was pretty rare. Um, we're, we're still one of the only packaging manufacturing companies that have been, that have raised money. Um, but, uh, I, I love to see that. I, I think there's so much innovation to do. Uh, outside of software. And so it's great to see venture capital start to embrace those opportunities. 
because there really are growth opportunities that mimic software. It might come with a little bit more capital, but it also comes with potentially bigger opportunity in some cases. You know, there's $10 billion of styrofoam uh, being bought uh, globally uh, every year. And that, that has to go somewhere. People won't want to spend money on styrofoam in five years, you know, even two to three years. Um, so uh, there, there is a really big opportunity. So obviously that has uh, been seen by investors that have been investing, you know, pretty pretty much, you know, I mean, you've got the Series B and the C round literally like in, in the past couple of years and, and you literally raised even money during during COVID. So, I mean, unbelievable. Would you say that the pitch has gotten a little bit easier, not only with the progress, but then also with the consciousness in the market? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I remember going to... Silicon Valley, taking the three connecting flights from Richmond, Virginia to get out there, uh, you know, spending our last dollar on the flight and the hotel, uh, everything in Silicon Valley is probably 10 times as expensive as Richmond. And then having uh, the meeting I had painstakingly set up uh, to cancel, you know, an hour before. Uh, People just were not interested (laughs) for a while. Uh, We had to get a lot of traction. and we had well over $10 million of sales uh, when we closed our Series A. Uh, so, yeah, I think it, the times have changed. We've grown a lot. Um, and we found a really good set of investors that care deeply about the social mission uh, of what we're doing. And not they're not just looking at it as a financial return. And, and, and with COVID, it definitely limited our ability to meet new investors, but uh, we've been able to, to meet a lot of good folks over the years. And Wheat Chief Group, uh, it's actually based in London, led our Series C, but we were able to meet them last year. And uh, so it kind of came in just in the, we were able to meet them just in the nick of time before travel became um, impossible. So that, that certainly helped us close a, a really good round fairly quickly, even in the midst of COVID. Did you see any anything changing like during the the fundraising process here? I mean, did you see maybe like investors becoming a little bit more okay with with having important uh, uh, conversations over the video conference that maybe that didn't happen before? Did you see any any changes like that? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, video chat became the mode of of the you know the grilling that happens. Uh, I think they also wanted to meet more of the team. You know, uh, then and just really get a feel for the the whole team, uh, rather than just the few folks they might meet on an in person meeting. So I think there were some benefits because it's just easier to to set that up now. Uh, and uh, we did uh, some virtual uh, factory tours, uh, which you know by the second or third one I think ended up working okay uh, from a IT perspective, but. Uh, yeah, I, I think this has changed a lot. I mean, we'll, we'll see how it works out more broadly. Um, you know, hear about IPOs getting done with, uh, you know, roadshows done completely virtually. Uh, you know, is, is that the future for IPOs and also just for venture rounds? Or we'll go back to where how it was. It'll be interesting to see. It's especially interesting for us because we're so physical based. You know, our factories are in the majority of our business. Um, so it's it's tough for investors or even our customers to fully grasp everything we do without seeing that. Um, 
So I, I look forward to being able to welcome customers and investors back. Uh, in the meantime, we're, we're pretty strict on that. Uh, but, uh, you know, people find a way to get stuff done, I think, no matter what the environment is. And I, that, that's how it's all. Our, our investors were willing to be creative in how they could get comfort around their diligence. Absolutely. I mean, if there is a good deal, they're going to find a way to make it happen. So um, so that, that's for sure. So I guess, uh, uh, Brian, uh, let's say if you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world, let's say five years later, where the vision, I mean, tremendous news, imagine, five years sleeping, right? And you wake up in a world where the vision of Temper Pack is fully realized. What does that look like? Yeah, I, I think we're uh, we're international. We're operating in multiple continents. Uh, we're making, uh, call it tens of millions of, of coolers a month. We're uh, anywhere you see plastic foam or plastic bubble wrap, you know, we've found a, a really good way to replace it with a, a plant starch foam, uh, something that will break down uh, versus last thousand years in landfill. Um, there's endless applications. I think a lot of my job as leader is just to uh, not let our imaginations get in the way of executing right now. But every year we grow, we build our team, we execute, we, we kind of earn more time to work on those new product lines. And there really is a lot of opportunity there. And just growing internationally is uh, we're, we're really honing our factory model that we'll be able to um, you know, export the factory model uh, in a sense, but also um, we're, we're already starting to export to Europe. We have um, several good commercial partners out there, you know, half a dozen customers and growing really quickly. Um, and it, it just turns out it's actually less expensive for us to ship to the UK than it is to ship to Texas right now. Mm. It takes longer, um, but it, 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 the, our model is has been built to allow for export. So yeah, five years from now, I, I, I hope that um, we've really been a huge part of reducing the amount of plastic foam that's out there. Because uh, I think it's it's on its way out. The question is what's going to replace it. And I think that that's a very interesting point, you know, what you're touching there, because it typically is a really big obstacle or hurdle or challenge that startups face when they're actually going from the early stage mindset to the growth stage mindset. And, and I guess on that growth stage, when they start to think about international, right? How, how do you think about international? What, what have you learned about that? I've learned that uh, it's difficult. Uh, you know, I remember when we set up our factory in Las Vegas, um, that was really hard. <laughs> you know, like, uh, building out the team. Um, instilling the culture when you're you're not there every day uh just having uh standard operating procedures that work in both plants while also allowing them freedom to develop what works for their team uh it's difficult when you when you bring in a whole nother country i, I think it gets even harder um but it's done you know there there are many international manufacturing companies that have figured out how to how to do it so i i view it as a matter of time there's so much opportunity in, in the U.S. right now that that's been our primary focus. Um, so we're building business in Europe via export. And 
it'll be a matter of time before we we go build a plant out there uh i it, it's impossible to say when but it it could be pretty quick it could end up being a few years um the 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 hardest thing in, in has been prioritization there you know i think back to when james and i were in high school we wanted to start we, we just wanted a good idea that was the thing we we wanted and uh, every time we had a good idea, it was taken or it was something we couldn't do. Uh, and so now it's like we have so many good ideas. You know, I think everybody wants less plastic. They want packaging that works really well. And we, we feel like we have good designs for how to do it. But just channeling people to the highest priority thing is the way to execute well. I mean, I have no idea how Amazon does what they do. I mean, they seem to launch a brand new multi-billion dollar business like every six months and execute well. Um, but I, I'm sure that's not how they got started. <laughs> I'm, I know they focused uh, on books initially and, and built it up from there. So uh, I don't think we'll ever be at their scale and not to compare us to them, but I think every startup can't help but look at Amazon as, as an inspiration for how to execute while still innovating. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you're talking here about prioritizing, about execution. Uh, and I'm sure that for you, you know, also a big one was learning how to say no. Yeah. Tell us about this. It's, it, it's really hard. Um, it, it, it's finding customers that we can really add value to, you know, but in, in the beginning, we would do anything to win a customer, you know, if they, if they ship 200 boxes all year round, we would, you know, hand make it because we needed to learn. We needed to, to know what they wanted. And we were just excited and a little bit naive about what it meant to have a, a win-win customer relationship. But now we really try to find customers that um, we know we can add value for, and uh, it can be a, a really mutually beneficial thing. So that, that does mean um, screening out the, the customers that don't have a fit. Um, another big thing is just with product initiatives, um, we know that there's great products out there that we can build, but we can't go build 20 products right now. Uh, we, we need to focus on coolers. We need to be the best in the world at coolers. And if we do that right, we'll have a massive success. Anything else we build on top of that is, is you know, ex is, is extra in some way. Um, I do think it's a matter of time, but we still have a long ways to go in scaling uh, just the cooler product line, both in food and life sciences. Uh, and that requires saying no. Uh, and that's, it's, it's gut-wrenching every time. Um, but, uh, you know, we do, we do say yes sometimes. And that's why we're, uh, <laughs> that, that's why we're scaling. That's why we're growing. And uh, we got to remember, um, every time we say no, we're really just saying yes again to everything that we're doing. Absolutely. So, uh, so obviously there is one question that I, that I typically ask the guests that come on the show and that I wanted to ask you too. And that is if you had the opportunity to go back in time and have a chat with that younger Brian, that younger Brian that is brainstorming ideas you know, and, and thinking what's, what's going to be this next, you know, company that, that, that you're going to go at it and, and building and scaling. What would be that one piece of business advice based on what you know now that you would tell that younger self and why? Yeah, I think two things. One, enjoy it. It's okay to uh, 
get nervous about uh, things that could go wrong. Um, and I, I remember feeling at times like when things would go right, not really trusting that, not really allowing us to celebrate them because it always felt like as soon as you celebrated, something would go wrong. And it's often how it works, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't celebrate because it's just not going to be um, nearly as fun as it can be. And it's not the celebration that gets in the way that causes the the mistake or the, the issue that arises that that's going to come regardless. So uh, celebrating more uh, and, and stressing less is really important. And then the second thing is building a, a world-class team as soon as you possibly can. Uh, we had awesome early employees that, you know, helped us and are helping us build the business. Um, they were a lot like us, you know, young, hungry, willing to do anything. And uh, that helped us scale. I think the past couple of years, we've been able to build a, a really world-class, highly experienced management team. Uh, and they, uh, having that team in place has allowed us to scale so much faster. Issues that would have been major, major issues are things that you know, they've seen before to some extent, and they, they uh, can help put it in perspective. So uh, I, I, I would tell myself, go build that team as soon as you possibly can. Um, and they should be truly 10 times smarter than you and have much more experience in these areas. Um, I, I think as an entrepreneur, you break so many rules just to, you know, about, uh, you know, you rebel against a system in some sense and say, you know, we can start a brand new company and, and do it better than what's being done out there. And that's why it's a good opportunity. And so you get in this kind of rebellious mindset and then you kind of want to transform everything. So anything that looks like another company, you're like, well, we don't want to be like them. So we don't want to do the things that they do. And so that's why we're all young and super hungry. And that'll ultimately let us scale forever. Um, but, uh, I think you got to be humble enough to realize like, yeah, we had a, a really good innovation. We do packaging better than anyone, but there's a lot we can learn from other companies and how they set up. And uh, so I guess be a little bit less of a rebel is what I would, I would tell, uh, you know, me, James and Charles at an early age. Very nice. And for the folks that are listening, Brian, what is the best thing, the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Yeah, um, just uh, shoot me a note, uh, Brian at TemperPack, B-R-I-A-N.com, uh, or at TemperPack.com, and uh, would love to hear from you. Amazing. Well, Brian, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Love sharing the story. Appreciate it. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, Share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.